Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we gather this morning to rejoice in your goodness, to sing your praises, and to give you honor. But Father, we recognize that we have sinned against you, and apart from your grace, we could never repay the debt of our sin. Apart from the shed blood of Jesus, there is nothing we could do to avoid the natural consequence of our rebellion against you. And so we humbly repent and we say, worthy is your name. Your judgments are good and true. Thank you for forgiving us sinners. Father, we praise you for your provision in this body and for your church across the globe. We thank you for our partnership that we have with Pastor Marcel and other pastors in Burkina Faso. We thank you for the work of your spirit in causing us to share generously out of what you have given us, that we might be a vessel of grace to the church in Burkina, that your name may be made great among peoples, tribes, and tongues that have never heard your name. Father, we praise you for the freedom from the bondage of sin that comes from the cross. We know that you have called people from the four corners of the earth to yourself, and you've preserved a remnant from across time and space of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to be a people set apart for your service. Father, we lament that our country has a history of marginalizing and unjustly treating people made in your image based on the human constructed categories of race. We lament that we, like Babylon, trafficked human souls like livestock and subjugated them to subhuman status because they were black. We ask for your grace as a church and as individuals to be a refuge for the oppressed, a source of your provision for the poor, and a place where the truth of your gospel is preached. A place where your gospel is preached lovingly without compromise to any who come through our doors. Father, we also rejoice with those who rejoice today on Juneteenth because you have brought about freedom for the enslaved in this country. We give you praise for your restorative justice, and we ask that our political leaders would seek your face to enact laws and policies that would promote your justice. True justice that leads people to giving you alone the honor and glory. We look forward to the day pictured in our text today when we will celebrate with the universal church that your final justice has been revealed. Father, we also pray a blessing over the fathers in this church. God, you are the perfect example, as we even sang about this morning, of a good father. May we follow hard after you that we may preach the good news to our families in our words and deeds. May we have grace and mercy for our children as you have been gracious and merciful to us. When we need to correct and discipline them, may it be out of a heart to point them to you. We also pray for those who have experienced brokenness in their paternal relationships. We pray that peace would abound and where opportunities for reconciliation exist, that you would intervene, that you would receive glory in all of our relationships. Father, we look forward to the day we can see you face to face as your children and our adoption into your family will be fully realized. And Father, we thank you for all the kids who graduated kids' classes this last week. We are thankful for all the hard work in the children's wing, for all the volunteers and for the staff work that Kelton, Laura, and Kelly put in to make things work smoothly. We pray that we would be a church that continues to preach the gospel to our children and disciple them in your ways. Father, may your name be made great by the preaching of your word this morning. May your spirit convict and encourage us by Nick's preaching. Increase our faith, we pray this morning. In the name of Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have, take a seat. 
Good morning and welcome. Uh, my name is Nick. If you're visiting here this morning, I am the associate pastor. Uh, don't be shy. Come and introduce yourself to me. Uh, I will not be able to meet and greet everybody, uh, but it would be wonderful to at least uh, put a name and a face together. Well, happy Father's Day. It is a, a, indeed a day that we can celebrate. If you're a Christian, you have a reason to celebrate fathers today. For in Christ, we have a father who will never leave us or reject us. We have a father who hears us when we're distressed and who will not leave us alone. Now, I remember growing up, thankfully it wasn't too long ago, I do remember that, uh, I would dreamt of being a bit of a hero. I was also had a quick temper and, and liked to kind of pick and fight with the neighborhood kids. There were a couple of kids who wouldn't back down, and we get, ended up getting into a fight. I don't remember any massive damage being done, um, some bloody noses, maybe a black eye, but there was one kid. There was that one kid who wouldn't fight with me. He would not fight with me. In fact, he would just run away and go home. Now, the first time this happened, I remember thinking, oh, great, this was easy. Uh, I, now, I didn't get the endorphin rush that I was looking for, but at least, you know what, I, I was right and he was wrong. And I was elated at my bravery and his weakness. It wasn't long, though, before he came back out and told us that his cousin was coming over. <laughs> I was familiar with his cousin. He was older than us and he would provide us objects that we, sh we weren't able to get on our own at that time. He also had a black belt in karate. And he really loved his younger cousin. I remember one time running to my house, being chased by him, and I was fearing for my life at the moment. It was in those moments that I too longed for somebody bigger and stronger to come to my aid and rescue me. In my fanciful dreaming, what I wished for was a father who would show up and destroy all who opposed me. In my mind, I was righteous, and I was right, and they were not. They were wrong. Now, I had a great father, and, and if he would have heard about these things, at the time, he would have judged my childish ambitions rightly. But in my mind... I needed a warrior. I needed somebody who could command respect and bring devastation on my boyhood enemies. Isn't that really all of our realities, though? We suffer wrong, whether it's perceived or genuine, and we desire that somebody would just come to our aid. We place this ideal on politicians. We place this ideal on our military. And maybe even in a difficult marriage, we would wish this in our own life because we are opposed to our spouse. This morning, we are in Revelation chapter 19. Like so many of our previous sermons, this is brought to you by progressive recapitulation. <laughs> we are going to recapitulate through the book of Revelation, and we find ourselves once again looking at final judgment. What does final judgment look like in the, in the book of Revelation and in Scripture? 
we have spent time already viewing this topic. But last week and this week, we're looking at it from the angle of two participants. Now remember, the book of Revelation is a story. It's a book of conflict. The conflict of two kingdoms. The conflict of two players. The people of the Lamb and Babylon. Babylon is the bully of God's people. The people of God suffer under the oppression of sin, death, and persecution from the world. This is Babylon. The injustice that they are suffering is at the hands of this world that they live in. And last week in chapter 18, we saw that this world was judged by God. It was cast down. It was destroyed. And this prompted the people who had placed their trust in the world to sing songs of grief. They were mourning songs. And we saw last week, this is key, that they expressed their grief in three woes. Woe, woe, woe. We also saw that the last verse of chapter 18 leaves us with the realization that this bully, Babylon, the world, had the blood of the saints and the prophets stored up in her. And so it is with this in mind that we come to Revelation 19, verse 1. And what we will see is that the people of God, too, have a song. You see, at the end of the world, everybody's singing. But what song is it that they're singing depends on which side they're on. Let's read Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, and he has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cry out, Hallelujah! The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And the throne, and from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and be glad. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
For those of you who are taking notes, the title of this sermon and the big idea is this, the heavenly celebration of those who are ready for the judgment of God. The heavenly celebration of those who are ready for the judgment of God. This is a two-point sermon, and we're going to look at the first point now in verses 1 through 5. Praise of God for his judgment. Let's, let's refresh ourselves by reading uh, verses 1 through 5 again. Even though we just read it, I think it'll be good to have it right where we can grasp it. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a, a, a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. We are now find ourselves in a heavenly scene. The camera has switched from looking at the earth and the people on the earth and is now looking at what is taking place in heaven. What is happening in heaven when the world is judged? John hears a, a loud voice, a multitude of people in heaven crying out. Remember, last week, they, there was the cry of woe. But this week, what we see is not of woe, as those who were on earth, but proclaiming hallelujah. These voices are worshiping God. Why? Why are they worshiping God? Well, in verse 2, we see that they are praising God for his accurate judgments, his salvation, and for calling all of his servants to join in song with them. The heavenly praise we see includes the 24 elders and four living creatures who fall down and worship God who is now seated on the throne. They too proclaim, Hallelujah. In our 10 verses, right, verses 1 through 10 total, we see the word hallelujah used four times. But in just these five, we see it used three times. A very, very direct contrast to the three woes that we saw in the previous chapter. For we now see a threefold proclamation of praise to God. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word. It literally means praise Yahweh, Hallel Yah, praise Yahweh, praise God, where, where the proponents of the world system, where the inhabitants of the earth were distressed at the destruction of their world of Babylon, the great multitude who are in heaven are praising God. Can, can you imagine hearing a multitude of people proclaim their praise to God in unison? Why don't we try that now, right? All of us, together. Let's three times say hallelujah, all right? Let's do it. Hallelujah, 
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, this is probably 110 people. 120. The multitude in heaven themselves were proclaiming praise to God. This heavenly assembly knows the truth about God. And we see this in verse 2, that they, they praise God for his judgments, they say, are true and just. He did not err in judging the world. For he has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth. These people of God, these saints that we see in heaven, have suffered from persecution at the hands of the world. They have suffered from sin, from death. They know what it is that Babylon stands for. And here, God has brought justice to those who have died on the earth. Right? These are saints who are in heaven. They have gone before. They have died. They know intimately the suffering that is taking place on the earth. And God has vindicated them. For he is active in his judgment on this world. The suffering, the pain that that we too face in life, God will make right by actively judging and coming then to the aid of his people. God is like a father standing up for his helpless children and he will avenge the bullies of sin and death. This is the people of God's hope. We... God will make all things in this world right. He is a God who saves, and he is a God who also judges sin through salvation. I mean, even in our own country's dark history, the slaves that were were bought and sold here in America had many spiritual songs that they would sing. And you know what the vast majority of them had to do with? Crying out to God for salvation that he would come and judge their oppressors and that he would rescue them. I mean, just think of Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, right? Their their hope was to be carried out of this world that God would judge rightly. Even now in our day, the people of God are, are in need of a Savior to come and judge the oppression that they are under. One doesn't need to look very far to see that sin is rampant, right? Sin is all over. It infiltrates every area of our society. It infiltrates every area of our lives. The old spirituals had it right. At the end of time, it is God who is worthy of righting these wrongs. So what we see is that Babylon will be left in ruins, It will be as if she is, as we see in our text, smoking, and that that smoke is rising to heaven. Almost has this idea of an offering, uh, uh, the, the same idea of smoke just rising up to God. For reference, when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah with fire, it was the smoke that represented the complete destruction. Nothing of Babylon will be left. We worship a God who is worthy of our worship and will demonstrate that as he brings justice upon the entire world. 
The narrative of Scripture is pointing towards this. We see it here in Revelation as a future, uh, uh, something that will happen in the future. But the people of God have always known that God will avenge them. Look at Deuteronomy 32, 43. It's on the screen. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. In the Old Testament, God cleansed the land of sin, and that was the job of the nation of Israel. And this was just a picture of the cleansing that will take place at the end of time. And it's for this reason that we can have hope, that our future holds hope. For praise God, he will judge sin. No matter what you have suffered in this life, at the hands of evil, or even what you struggle through with your personal uh, sin, God will deal with it. If you are in Christ, you have great reason to look forward to this day. For God's judgment will be celebrated by everybody who is in heaven. God is coming back to judge the world, and when that happens, heaven will rejoice. Now, for many of us, this can be a hard reality. I mean, if, if heaven will rejoice at the true judgment of God, shouldn't that be a day that we really, truly look forward to? Shouldn't we rest in a, a deep sense that all will be made right? I would submit to you that God's final judgment is something that we should not only look forward to, but it should inform how we live today. Our lives should look different because God will judge. And that we can take joy in that future judgment. Our lives should reflect the reality that God will come to judge sin. God will judge the world and show himself to be the true God. Lord of lords and King of kings. And it is because of God's glory that that judgment is good. Heaven, then, will give praise to God for his judgments, and we, too, then, should align our hearts here and now with this reality. But in the here and now, we wonder, how could this be? How could all of heaven be praising God for a final decisive judgment? How can I look forward to that? Well, it helps, maybe, to remember that the rejoicing that we see in heaven isn't because of the destruction caused two people. But what we see in Revelation 19 is that heaven is rejoicing because God has vindicated his own name. In verse 2, it is hallelujah. Praise God for his salvation, for his power and glory that the host of heaven gives praise to God. I wonder if we struggle with this because maybe we don't truly understand the depth of sin. We don't understand maybe fully the weight of sin. For when Adam sinned, he didn't just do a bad thing. He didn't just need a slap on the wrist and go back to, to playing in the garden and tending it. No, he broke the law of a holy God. He put himself, and because we all are part of Adam, everyone who followed after him 
at odds with God's law. He made himself to be an enemy of God, opposed to all that is good and holy. Because of this, Scripture says then that we are born sinners, not because we do bad things, not because we mess up, but because of who we are. Ephesians 2, verse 3 says this, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We all, at one point, were under the wrath of God. Adam's sin broke what was intended to be good, and now the whole world is suffering under that decision. We ultimately want to just paint ourselves in a better light, and, and to paint maybe the world in a better light, and our friends and family in a better light. We want to make things out to be better than they actually are, right? We want to be optimistic. And this can lead to another reason why God, taking joy in God's judgments can be so foreign to us. When we minimize sin, when we minimize it in ourselves or in the world, Babylon and the things of the world really aren't as bad as God actually says they are. We, we then begin to slowly look like, act like, talk like, walk like the world. We slowly become ingrained and entrenched in the world and in its way of thinking. Right? I mean, after all, it's, it's okay for uh, uh, right? a, a lady to have a choice over her body. It's just her body Never mind that there's another body inside of her. I mean, gender, is it really that big of a deal? After all, it's just a social construct. Can we really tell others what their bodies are for? When we do these things and others, the, the, the world loses its proper place that Scripture has given it in our lives. As Christians, instead of being in the world but not like it, we, become, we begin to become like the world, buying in to its ideologies, buying in to how it says salvation really can come. Hans hit on it last week. We, in America, for 200 years, have looked like the culture because it's Christian. The American church is notorious for minimizing sin and looking like the world around it. This is, why one reason, this is one reason why the popular view of Revelation says that America is the hand that judges the world on behalf of the God who protects it. We like to think we're better than we actually are. As believers, as Christians, we should long for the judgment of God because we recognize the wickedness of the world that we live in and we recognize the amount of sin can live in us. One final reason maybe that, that taking joy in God's judgment on the world could seem foreign to us, and for me this is personally the one that I struggle with, is that I love what God has given me. I love what God has given me. For God to, to judge is to realize that what I love and hold dear, the life that I live, could come under his judgment. 
It's in these moments that that we and I must remember how bad sin actually is. When God judges, heaven will rejoice at the just power that God possesses. This side of heaven, I think we can only meditate on it. We cannot fully comprehend it. Some homework for this week, then, is to ponder the final judgment of God. Are you willing to give God praise in that moment? To proclaim hallelujah with the host of heaven for his judgments? If not, I would challenge you to question why. What makes God's judgment on sin so difficult? For God's judgment is closely tied to his holiness. So it's worth meditating on. It's worth pondering. For all of this goes back to the glory of God. God will vindicate his glory. Sin has dampened that. Sin has destroyed the image of God in this world. Creation is not how it's supposed to be. But he will return this world to its intended purpose. All right, back to Revelation 19. The end of verse 5 gives a command. The host of heaven calls on the people of God who fear him to also give God praise. When God judges the world, the people, his people will be united with him. And this leads us to point number two. In verses 6 through 10, we see that we are to praise God for his salvation. Praise of God for his salvation. Let's read verses 6 through 10 again. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, what we just read is probably one of the best texts in all of Scripture. For the the Christian, final judgment gives us the opportunity to praise God for his salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. But we also get a glimpse here of what is in store for us. What is in store for those who are in Christ? John hears another great voice, this time a voice, the uh, the sound of a a voice much larger, a, a greater multitude of people crying out. He describes it as the sound of a roar of many waters, and they are crying out in unison, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Praise God, for he is on the throne. There is none who can stand before him, and there is none who can judge Babylon as he has judged them. 
the reason for their joy? It's time. It is time for the bride to be united with the groom. What a beautiful picture that we have here. The longing of our of the people of God to be united with their Savior. This text is commonly referred to, and you might actually see this in your Bible, uh, as the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is what the future of the people of God is. A wedding. A wedding, one of the biggest events in a person's life, right? Something that, that young girls dream of from a, a very, very, very young age, looking forward to marrying the man of their dreams. Boys begin thinking about their wedding right after the time they hit puberty, looking forward to, well, you know, just being married, all the perks that go with that. It's something that everybody looks forward to. In Scripture, the picture of marriage, the picture of being married, carries with it a deep sense of intimacy, of being united, of two becoming one, right? The unification of names, of finances, of families. This is how our culture signifies what is taking place when people get married. God has called a people to himself, and they, the church, are now the bride of Christ. They are the bride of Christ. At the end of times, when the world is judged, the people of God will be fully prepared to be united together with their Savior for eternity. If that doesn't give you chills, I don't know what will. While we were born in this world with a sin nature that has been passed down from Adam, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, took our punishment. He suffered the wrath of God and died in our place. Through faith in his sacrifice, we can have eternal life. If you're a theology nerd, look up federal headship. Jesus Christ is our federal head instead of Adam for those who are in Christ. It says here in Revelation that the bride is clothed with bright, fine linen. It is pure. This clothing was, we see, given to her in our text that she should be ready for the marriage to the Lamb. So she has been prepared for this time to spend eternity worshiping and united with Jesus. And a bride is never prettier than on her wedding day. What we also see here in this text is that at the end of the time, the clothing that, they, that, they wear, that she wears is also the righteous deeds of the saints. So we have this clothing that is bright and white and has been given to her. But we also see in the same verses that this piece of clothing is the righteous deeds of the saints. Well, which is it? How can both be true? The clothing is given to them, but it is also part of what they did on earth. This idea of both and is very prevalent in Scripture. It's even prevalent with the same idea here in the book of Revelation. Let's look at Revelation 3, verses 4 through 5. We spent uh, some time on this now months ago, so I would encourage you to go back if you did not. And we're not here to listen to this sermon, but it says in verse 4, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
The one who conquers will be clothed, thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. Both are true here. They are responsible for cleansing the clothing, while simultaneously the clothing has been given to them. Both are true. Walking through this world can muddy up the clothing that God has given you of salvation, of righteousness. And we work through that salvation here in this, wor- in this world. How can you and I not earn one bit of our salvation, but at the same time be clothed with clothing of good deeds? It's kind of the question. And we don't have a time for a deep theology on works and faith, but here's a summary. The righteousness of Christ justifies us, and our good deeds prove that justification to be working itself out in our life. But to be saved, one must fully understand what they are saved from and how they are saved. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ here on earth, but one day we will be more fully clothed with him. For we are in a state now of of preparation for the final consummation of our salvation. But this wedding, Christian, this is your future. You want to know what you're going to do when you grow up? Spend eternity united with and in Christ. God has clothed you in righteousness, and one day that will be much more clear and a better picture of what is reality. And God, because of this, is worthy of your worship. He's worthy of my worship because he is not only the judge of sin, but he is also the savior of his people. We will worship and celebrate in an eternal intimacy with him. Revelation, as a book, was written with and to a church in exile, right? It was written to an audience that said, yeah, we know we're suffering. We know this is hard. We know that this is not our home. And Revelation reminds the church that one day we will be united with the crowned victor of all of history. And your union with Christ, Christian, in the future is a present reality today. It is this union that should drive us away from the love of the world. It should drive us away from looking at Babylon, thinking that that this world has actually something to offer. And it should push us right into Jesus. Because you are in in Christ, the things of this world will not satisfy. Oh, they might bring temporary enjoyment. But eternity is what we ought to live with in the front of our minds. The clothing that you have been given, you affirm by what you do with your life, right? That's the idea. The clothing that, you, that, that the bride of Christ has given has been affirmed by what they have done. Now this is a direct contrast. The, the clothing of the bride is in direct contrast to what we saw the harlot wearing earlier in Revelation. Uh, we see this in Revelation 17.4. What was this woman wearing? Well, she was arrayed. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Where the woman wore an outfit of gold and jewels, right? She put it on. She dressed herself up. She made herself pretty. 
the bride of Christ wears a simple, bright piece of linen, not clothed by herself. She has received her clothing as a gift, purified by righteousness and affirmed by a life of faithfulness. This is the good news. Through Christ, we are clothed in righteousness. Our lives point to a salvation that we have in him. Your faithfulness isn't what you do, but what God has done first in you. And our deeds then flow out of a life that has been transformed radically. What we do is because the Spirit of God is alive inside of us. The world should be able to see that we are different. The world should be able to see that what we do doesn't save us. No, we are, we are not saved by works. We are saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. This is what it means to be a Christian. That you don't rest in all of the good that you do. You don't have to prove yourself that you're good enough, for you're not. You don't look to make a great name for yourself, but you look to make a great name for God who has saved you. So if you're hearing anything this morning, hear this. To be a Christian means that you recognize all that you do earns you nothing before God and that you are made clean through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is his righteousness then that pushes you to a godly life. Turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. We're going to read verses 6, 6 through 9 together. Just more confirmation of what it is that, that Revelation as a book is really pointing us towards. Revelation, or Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be take, he will take away from all over the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said in, on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Look at the celebration that's going to take place the celebration that God will swallow up sin and death and that we will feast with him for eternity. And as the prophet Isaiah says, this is reason to rejoice. This is reason to be glad. God's people have been looking forward to that day, the final day of judgment, where tears will be wiped away, death will be done, done away with, and no longer will his people be thought of as a reproach, as a nuisance. And on that day, we will celebrate the goodness and love of our God and Savior. 
So this wedding feast is going to happen, and we should give ourselves to this truth. All of what we do, whether it's our, our struggle in this life with an addiction or a marriage that seems to be on shaky ground, even on good days, everything should be lived in light of this reality that one day you will be united with Christ and we will celebrate forever. One other thought here about this marriage supper of the Lamb as we kind of, is this close tie that we see here with communion. When we celebrate communion, we are proclaiming our righteousness through faith, our righteousness through Christ alone, by faith alone, and that God has judged sin, and he has judged my sin. It is also commonly referred to as theologians as a meal. Now, I know it's just one piece of bread and a half a swallow, quarter of a swallow of juice, but it's, it's a meal. It is a meal, and it is a picture of a future meal, a future meal that we will all participate in for those who are in Christ. One day we will gather in our new clothes and, and celebrate the work of God as he has united us to himself. This is why it's imperative that you are a Christian if you participate in this meal. To participate in communion while outside of Christ is to proclaim his judgment on yourself. Ordinarily, when one has become a Christian, they are also have joined themselves to a local body of believers. These fellow Christians then can give affirmation to the work of the Spirit in the individual's life. Yes, your life backs up what you say. We can see there, there's consistency. It's kind of what we see in Revelation. There's consistency they were not only worthy of the clothing, what they did proved that they were worthy of the clothing. So if you are not a Christian or, or, or are even not part of a local church, please talk with someone after the service. There are many here, including myself, who would love to walk with you through and think about what it means to be a Christian who is part of a church that can affirm their faith. All right, finally, the, the final two verses uh, of this section, verses 9 and 10, are, are a bit confusing uh, of Revelation 19. We're back to Revelation. Good verbal cue there. Uh, they're a bit confusing for most everyone who reads and studies uh, this text, most commentators. We see John interacting with an angel who, who tells him to write a blessing to all who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, John's response to this is to fall down and worship, right? I'm, he falls down and, and worship, but the angel stands him up, dusts him off, says, hey, buddy, don't do this. I'm a fellow messenger. I am with you. You, you should only worship God. For I, too, hold to the testimony of who Jesus is. So what can we gather from these two verses? Well, from these couple of verses, we can gather that the invitation to participate in the marriage supper of a lamb is a blessing to those who hear it. The invitation alone is a blessing. Now, they may not respond favorably, right? People reject the invitation. But I think we should speak of it broadly, right? If we're giving a blessing, like, hey, there will be judgment and we can be united with Christ, right? 
We should speak of this to people. Evangelism should be our goal. Where the preceding verses here in 9 and 10 were, uh, spoke of a marriage supper of a lamb in corporate terms, right? We see the whole church gathered. Here in verses 9 and 10, we see the individual aspect of salvation. How does one get to the marriage supper of the lamb? How does one be known as a servant of the lamb, Jesus Christ? The angel is clear. It is those who hold on to this testimony. It is those who hold on to this and worship God and nothing else. This is what it means to be a Christian, to hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. For those who hold to that testimony, his life and death and resurrection are the propitiation for your sins. It is those people, it, are those, it is those people, it is me, who will spend eternity worshiping God. And friend, may this be true of your life as well. May this be the joy of your life, that you hold fast to the testimony of Jesus and that you look forward to an eternity spent worshiping God who has judged our greatest enemy, sin. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do praise you. Lord, our hearts cry hallelujah. Praise God for the salvation that you have given us. Lord, we also pray that we would long for the reality that one day we will be united with you and that you will judge sin finally and fully. Lord, may that be the longing of our hearts even now as we come to your table. Amen.